then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy, and they are true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Good morning, church. We're so grateful that you're here with us, and uh, if you're a first-time guest with us here uh, at Stone Point, we're grateful that you've taken the time to be with us, and uh, today we are wrapping up a series called Signs, uh, and the awesome thing about it is if you've been with us for the last three-plus months, uh, you've seen this video every single week, and you're like, man, can that ever end? And uh, the reason we didn't want it to end is because it was the ending, uh, and so we're going to cover everything that you just saw in there. Uh, and we're going to do so as we wrap up this series. Uh, I'll tell you this, uh, as we wrap up the series, uh, you may be here and you'll be thinking, oh, wow, I just showed up to the book of Revelation. Uh, and if you know anything about it, it's about the end times and it's about uh, the, really the end of the world and what's going to transpire after that. And you could think, well, man, I may be over my head today. And here's the cool thing, is that when you get to Revelation at the very end, it talks about something that we're all interested in, and that is heaven. And so today, we're going to talk through that and what heaven is, uh, what it's not. And so let me just kind of begin with this phrase, and I think you'll uh, have to think about it regardless of where you are, uh, whether you're here on the Wills Point campus or you're joining us online at this moment or if you're in Edgewood uh, or wherever else in the world you are, think about this. Heaven today is not what it was, and it's not what it will be. So heaven today is not what it was, and it's not what it will be, okay? So we're going to talk about that. Hopefully today you walk out of here and you have a clear understanding of heaven, the realities thereof, and what we should be expecting and what we should look forward to. Let me pray with this, and we're going to dive in, and we're going to do so at a fairly high speed. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for your purpose and your plan uh, in our lives. We thank you that the plans that we have don't begin with us, uh, but ultimately begin with your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he was perfect in every way, uh, that he died an excruciating death so that we could have 
uh, an incredible new life, that we could be forgiven of our sins, that ultimately we could um, have victory over death and the grave. And Father, we pray that as we talk about uh, the end of days, that you would give us wisdom, uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and Lord, that you would illumine our hearts to understand your truth and your ways. Father, I pray that uh, we would see you and behold your goodness. And I pray that we'd live for you and love like you love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. And uh, in Revelation chapter 20, we're going to cover um, something uh, that happens right before um, you get to heaven and a new heaven and a new earth, which is Revelation chapter 21. But in order to do so, let me just kind of catch you up real quickly. Here's what we think uh, the scripture clearly shows us. Um, and so I uh, hold to this view myself, and uh, it's, it's about the end of days. And so here's what I think uh, Paul talks about to the church in uh, Thessalonica, I think is what John's speaking of. And John, uh, as he writes Revelation chapter 4, uh, at the end of uh, this day or days, uh, eventually Jesus is going to come back. And I believe the scripture tells us that he's going to rapture his church, meaning that those who have trusted in Jesus and the complete and final work of the cross, he is going to rapture and he's going to call up to, to heaven as you know it today. And then it's going to usher in a seven-year period in which the scripture says, is the tribulation. The tribulation can be referred to as the tribulation. It can be referred to uh, as the great tribulation, or even uh, we know it as the time of Jacob's trouble. And the tribulation is ushered in by the event of the rapture of the church. And once the church is gone, this seven-year period is going to have a multitude of characters. Uh, you're going to have a, a, a revived empire that ultimately out of it's going to come one that you've heard the name Antichrist. In that time, you're going to have uh, you're going to have earthquakes and famine and peril and sword. You're going to have um, kings fighting against kings, but there's going to be the ultimate purpose of the tribulation fulfilled, and it's twofold. One, God is going to uh, bring back a nation and a people that have long rejected him and his son, and that is the nation of Israel. And so during the seven-year tribulation, he is going to bring that nation. I think uh, about the three-and-a-half-year mark, they're finally going to see who God is. They're going to see um, that he loves them, cares for them, and desires for them to be his people, and they're going to be saved. And that nation as a whole is going to really come back to him for the first time in centuries. And then, not only that, God is going to use this seven-year tribulation period as well to bring judgment upon men and women and nations and kings that have long rejected God. They wanted to be their own God. And so in that seven-year tribulation, he's going to save the nation of Israel, and he's going to judge nations who have rejected God and the nation of Israel. And so after that seven-year period is finalized, you're going to see um, that God is going to send his son, Jesus. Revelation 19 on a white horse, he's going to bring final vengeance and justice upon the earth, and then he's going to set up his kingdom. And the, the Bible tells us that he's going to set up a kingdom, and it's going to call, be called the millennium or the millennial kingdom. 
Uh, the idea is that Jesus is going to reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. He's going to sit on a throne that was desecrated by Antichrist. He's going to redeem the throne. He's going to rule righteously, and he's going to do so for a thousand years. And then after the thousand years is done, Satan and uh, is going to be unleashed for just a time to deceive. And then after that, he and everybody that's ever followed him, Antichrist, the false prophet, demonic beings, and everyone else will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And that happens after a thousand year millennial reign. And you're like, you're telling me that we are for sure waiting on a rapture of God's church a seven-year tribulation period, and then you're telling me there's going to be a thousand-year reign where Jesus is going to be here on the earth? And the answer is yes. That's what I just told you. And you're like, well, why has no one ever told me that? I can't do anything about that. But that's what the Bible says. Then what's after that is a new heaven and a new earth. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But before you have a new heaven and a new earth, you have to have judgment of the earth. And so after the millennial reign, you have the judgment of the earth. And you see that in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. So I'm going to cover it uh, somewhat quickly. Uh, Jesus is the final judge. You see that very clearly in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 27. If you want to write that down, you can go see it uh, for yourself. But in verse 11, John, after he has seen... Um, the thousand-year millennial reign come to the end, he sees something else, and he tells you about it. Verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. So, so John, he gets this incredible picture of what happens. He sees Jesus in the millennial reign. At the end of the millennial reign, he sees people deceived. Ultimately, after the deceived, Satan's cast in the lake of fire. And then after that, it says the earth just begins to give way. Peter speaks about it very candidly, and he tells you the earth is going to be burned up. That 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 13, I uh, tell you that it's going to be dissolved. And so you, the, the planet that you know now, earth, is going to fade away. It's ultimately going to be destructed and destroyed. Uh, through however God desires to do it. And as he's destructing the earth, he's also gathering people, both great and small is what John says, and they're going to stand before the one who is seated on the throne. And John refers to this as a white throne judgment. Now, you may have never uh, been in church, or maybe you haven't been in church a long time. You've heard before that eventually maybe God's going to judge people. You may not believe in the judgment, but you've heard clearly probably before that that there's going to be a white throne judgment. And the question is, is what is the white throne judgment and who is it for? Because there's a lot of debate about that. And I think there's a couple of misconceptions. Number one, I think there's a misconception of who is going to be judged. And I think the other misconception is when are they going to be judged? Because I think what right now, the common thing that happens in our life is we think, okay, um, as soon as I die, I'm going somewhere. And so the question is, where am I going? And you think I'm either going to heaven or I'm going to hell. And the question is, is what does heaven look like? Well, we'll talk about that here in a minute, but I'll tell you, it's not streets of gold and it's not crystal sea. The heaven that is now is not what it will be and it's not what it was. So the question also begs, well, what in the world is hell? Is it lake of fire? The answer is no, it's not lake of fire yet. What is it? It's a place called Hades. You remember Jesus said, even the gates of hell, Hades, he used the word he used, 
will not prevail against my church. And the idea of Hades is a place where there is torment, but get this, what they're really waiting on is the final judgment, the final judgment in which they'll stand before God in a white throne judgment. And you go, well, how do we know that he's, he's going to do that? Well, Revelation 20 tells us. Matter of fact, look at the latter part of verse 12. They're, they're all standing before him. The books were open. And then it says, then another book was open and the but, um, the, and it was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The idea is that the dead are the ones who are, are dead, uh, meaning dead in Christ. Like you, you didn't know him, you were apart from him. Matter of fact, look at verse 13. It says, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, underline that. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, which is the lake of fire. Then verse 15 says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So catch this. The earth gives way. God brings and he gathers the multitude of people who do not know him. And he goes, and I'll go to any depth to get them. He goes into the sea and he grabs it and the sea is no more. And the death line, the dead line up. Because you always wonder, well, what in the world happened to all those sailors in the sea and their bodies were never found? God goes, I'll get them, don't worry. And so he gets them and he lines them up, those that don't know him. And then the earth gives way. And what happens in that moment is this, People with unregenerate hearts and unrepentant hearts are beginning to be lined up. And there is no tree to hide behind. There is no rock to crawl under. There is nowhere to escape the judgment of God. Matter of fact, even God goes to where? Death and Hades, and he lines them up. That means that anybody who does not know Christ is going to be lined up in the last days as the earth gives way. And there is going to be a line. And you know what they're going to have with them? The books. But then it says something interesting, but then there was also the book of life. And the question is, is the book of life, what is that? The book of life is the book in which anyone who knows Christ, their name is in the book. Which means if your name is in the book, there's a couple of interesting things to note. One, it means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, meaning you will not be lined up at white throne judgment. White throne judgment is for those who do not know God. Paul writes something interesting to the church in in Rome. In Romans chapter 2, he just says that it's the hard and the impotent heart that will stand before God, and they are storing up wrath from God on the day of judgment. The idea is that we're storing up wrath from God if we don't know him, and one day he'll gather all the nations, all kings of the earth, everyone, tribe, tongue, people who rejected him. And on that last day, he'll gather them to himself. The earth will give way. And what he's going to do is he's going to open up the books. Interesting, he's not going to open up the Lamb's Book of Life in which your name is written in if you know him. What's also interesting is, and you should note, is that your name, because of the holy God we have and the sovereignty and the purposes of God, he knows your name and it's written in the Lamb's Book of Life before even one of your days ever came to be. Do you understand that? The idea is is that those who God foreknew and he predestined to become his sons, he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life in which you apparently never had books. You never had a book that had your name on it in which God was recording every single detail. It's this idea of sovereignty, but those who do not know him, they have their own books. The idea is that God has recorded every deed that you have ever done, whether word or in deed. 
everything you've spoken, everything that you said that could ultimately be used against you in a final day, God is recording in the books. And it's as if he gets to your book and it would have your name on it because you rejected Jesus and you rejected the sovereignty of his son and the death and the burial and the resurrection, either because you were your own God or either because you thought you would get around to following God or either because you just denied God and all of his sovereignty. Either way, one day you're going to stand before him. And Philippians 2 says, and every now, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. What is it talking about there? Here's what's happening. Can you imagine the earth giving way? There is nowhere to hide. You're now going to see God face to face and he pulls out the, the book that has your name on it in which you begin to defend yourself and against, against a perfect judge. And you have no defense. And he just stops you right there in that moment. And it's as if he recalls the deeds of the times in which you rejected him. Even the times that, that uh, after you spoke to one of your friends, right? And, and you had a great summer camp and you were really excited about what God was doing and you went to one of your friends and, and you told them about why they should repent and why they should you know, come to Jesus and why they should follow you and, and help you or you help them learn about him. And they said something like, no, I don't, I don't have time for that. I don't really believe in your God. I just think you're a goody two-shoes. I don't want, I don't want your life. Well, get this. One day, they're going to see God face to face and they're going to recall the moment in which someone encouraged them to repent and they chose not to. And then can you imagine what white throne judgment is? It's every knee will bow. It's this, God, will you please forgive me? I, I should have, I should have done that. I should have repented. I know I should have. I know people, I know I had this moment here and I know I had this moment here. And he says, no, and away from me. And he casts them into the lake of fire and they will have eternal judgment. There is nowhere to escape, and they will see God face to face, and their name will not be written in the book of life. Do you think salvation is important? Yes. Do you think trusting in Jesus is important? Yes, because if you don't trust in Jesus, you'll see God in all of his judgment. So what you have is this. You can see Jesus as a lamb of God who was slain on your behalf, or you can see him as a lion. And when you see him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, you may not see him in the valley uh, of Jehoshaphat, where he gathers people. You may not see him in the plain of Megiddo face to face when Jesus comes, but you will see him at white throne if you do not know him. And he will cast you in his presence and you will see eternal judgment and torment for those who do not know him. At the same time, Revelation 21 tells us that those who do know him will have eternal reward. Let's talk about it. So if you uh, have your Bible, we'll turn to verse one of Revelation chapter 21. And John, so after he sees the judgment of those um, who God had gathered and ultimately sent away to a place called hell, which is the lake of fire as you think of it in your mind, that happened at white throne judgment. Also, John sees another vision. In verse one, he says of chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. You should underline that. The first heaven, the first earth. What in the world? Hold on, what is it saying? The first heaven... How many heavens are there going to be? I think there's three. I think there was a heaven that was. I think there is a heaven that is now. And I think there is one that will be. And you go, what? I'll explain it to you in a minute. So the deal is, is this, is that this earth and the first heaven has passed away. They're no more. And then John says, now I've seen a holy city. It's a new Jerusalem. It's coming down out of heaven from God, prepares a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The idea is that earth, as you know it, pain, sin, disease, sickness, torment, bills, can I get an amen? All gone, like it's gone. Like earth as you know it is gone. This earth which has been wicked and has gone astray is gone. It, it is dissolved, it is no more. And the idea is that you could see John seeing this new Jerusalem coming out of heaven and it's, it's going to come, it's going to be a holy place of God and his dwelling. And it's gonna be a place of great reward. Verse five says, and he who is seated on the throne Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done, for I am the author of the omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give springs of water, the life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The idea is that you will be able to see God in all of his glory. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul, after he given you this brief statement about on what love is, he gives this really vague uh, line and he just says, now we see in a mirror dimly lit, but one day we'll see him face to face. The idea is right now we get glimpses of God, but one day we'll see God. And you go, what do, what do you mean like we get glimpses of God? Well, you've got glimpses of God all throughout your Bible. You remember in Eden, God would appear to Adam and Eve and they would have the appearance of God. They would be able to have a relationship with him. Uh, later, he would appear to Jacob as they wrestled, right? Uh, you would have appearance to Moses, not only in the burnished bush, but later in Exodus 33 on Sinai. You remember Moses saying, Lord, can I just see you face to face? And what did the Lord say? No, you, you can't see me. And he hit him in the cleft of the rock and he passed by and all Moses got to see was the back of God. Uh, later, you would have uh, God appear. And how would he do it? He would do it through the law. He would do it through the word of God lived by, lived for. Um, later, he would speak to the prophets and he would speak to them like Daniel and dreams and visions, revealing what the law was about and why we should follow it. And he spoke of it. And then eventually, because he had spoken in multiple different ways, he eventually said, you know what? What if I speak to you in a way that you could tangibly see and even touch God? And he sends his son, Jesus. Not a created being, but one who is deity. He has always been God and always will be God. Was with God in the beginning. He is the word of God and he sends him to be flesh. Matter of fact, John chapter one, verse 14, and it says, and he uh, came and he was the word and he made his dwelling among men. And the idea of dwelling there is, that, is the word in the Greek, skene. He had skin on. He was dwelling literally among the people. And what John was trying to help his audience see was if you wanted to know who God was, look at Jesus. You could touch him, you could eat with him, you could dine with him, you could ask him a question. And Jesus candidly said, I am the son of God. There is nothing that I do of my own will. I always do the will of the father. And he was in perfect subjection and he was in skin. Just like God dwelt in the tabernacle among skins, John says Jesus came and he was the tangible example and witness of God. And in the final heaven, get this, you will see God face to face. We've gotten glimpses of him in the past, but one day you'll see him with fullness. You'll approach him and he'll be an unapproachable light. He will be the dwelling place of God. And what's interesting in there is that we are going to be his bride and he is preparing a place. Apparently he is already in this time, he has fulfilled the place in which he has created many rooms and he has a place for you and his eternal abode, a dwelling in which we would receive and live with and enjoy. And he is our God and we are his bride, which means you don't have to have another bride. You won't be married in heaven. You will have the one who is perfect in everything. And some of you women are like, oh yeah, per perfect husband. That'd be awesome. Well, listen, <laughs> 
Men, you could say the same thing to your wife. He will be a perfect husband to you as well. Which is why I really struggle to hear couples use, well, I have been married to my soulmate for 45 years. No, you haven't been married to your soulmate for 45 years. You have only one soulmate, and his name is Jesus, the very one who bought you with a price. You are not your own. You have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. It is he who lives in you, who bought you. That's your soulmate. That's who your eyes should be on. That's the one who's preparing a place for you, beautifully adorned, and he will say what? You are my people. I am your God. You will be my, my son. You will be my daughter. You are my children. And that's in the last days in which you will see God with an unveiled face. What an exciting time. And the question is, is, is he's dwelling a, among you? And you say, well, well, there's no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away? And the answer is yes. And you go, well, what do you mean? He will, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. The idea there, as you begin to think through that, is to understand the Greek in its proper context. He is not saying that you will have tears. Matter of fact, it's not even like the old country song, which is, when I get to where I'm going, I'll only cry happy tears. No, you won't. There is no tears. There's no recollection of your sin. There is no recollection of any of the things that have happened. All of that seems to have passed away. There is no mourning. There is infinite joy. There is perfect bliss. All of it is a reminder of who God is and his faithfulness in spite of our sin and our past. It's heaven. It's glorious. It is what is to come. Verse 8 says, but as for the cowardly, he just helps you understand who won't be there. The faithless, the detestable, for the murderer, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And the idea of the second death is this, is that if you die a physical death, that's one thing. But if you die a spiritual death, that is the biggest problem you'll have. It's because you'll be separated from a holy God forever. And the question is, is where will you eventually be separated from him. And the answer is in a place that burns with fire and sulfur, the lake of fire. So you're telling me that that's not happened yet. And the answer is no, it has not happened yet. And so you go, well, well, well to help me understand real quickly, if there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, then what do we have now? Well, I think the best idea of that is what Jesus said to the guy on the cross. You know, he had two thieves, one of which I think was cast to a place called Hades. I think the other goes to a place called paradise. You remember what Jesus said, today you'll be with me in what? paradise. So what is paradise? Apparently it's a place where Jesus is. Apparently because of Revelation chapter 5 and 6, you see that there is a throne. God is there on his throne. And there is a place that we would refer to as heaven. I think a proper word, if you really want to get real technical, is probably the idea of paradise. But whatever it is, there is no pain. Uh, Paul says, you, if you die today, you're absent of the body, you're present of the Lord. You're with the Lord. But you don't have a glorified body. You're not eating and drinking. You're not fishing. You're not walking streets of gold. So what are you? You're clothed in righteousness. You have fine linen, white, and clean. And most likely, you're joining the rest of the saints and the angelic beings in heaven. And you're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And you just repeat that chant. chant. And then every now and then, you get a little break in heaven to celebrate anyone who has repented and come to know Christ. Outside of that, there's no fishing. There's none of that happening. The question is, is will it happen? The answer is absolutely it will. But when? Well, what we need is a rapture of the church, a seven-year tribulation, a thousand-year millennial reign, and then you'll get a new heaven and a new earth, the heaven that you talk about and dream of, and every preacher at every service says, Aunt Sally and Susie are now walking the streets of gold, and they're sewing together. No, they're not. 
but one day they will be. Do you understand? You're like, this is way more than I needed. No, you should know your Bible, and I'm so sorry that many of our churches have never taught it to you before. It is a shame that we are not having a proper eschatological view because there is a seated to come. That's why we should have anticipation. The heaven that is today is not what it was and it's not what it will be. Look at verse nine. Now you get the new Jerusalem. Now the new Jerusalem, I'm gonna describe to you because John described it, but I'm gonna go ahead and just help you understand real quickly. I'm not that intelligent and I'm not gonna speculate on heaven that I can't understand It's described to me, I'll read it to you, and then I'll help you understand uh, the best I can understand. So in verse 9, it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I'll show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. So who is he going to show you? Um, He is going to show you anyone who is a part of the church um, that is a part of God's kingdom now. And so it's not just the mystery of the church that's been made to know to us, not just Gentiles that are referred to as Christians. Um, It is... It is also Old Testament saints. It is martyrs in the tribulation. It is his bride. It is everybody that is his. He is the perfect husband and we are the bride. And so John gets caught up and you go, well, who calls him? What is this? This is an angel. It's one of the same angels that brings a part of the bold judgment of the seven-year tribulation. So after a thousand-year millennial reign, this angel is still existing and he is the one who's going to say, hey, John, this is what's going to happen, right? And so um, here it is. This angel calls him up and what do they see? They see him carried away in the spirit and he sees a high mountain. It's a holy city, a Jerusalem. It's coming down out of heaven from God and it has the glory of God. So heaven is going to be the glory of God. What's interesting is, is how many times we try to convince our kids to pray a prayer so they can go to a heaven that they don't understand and we happen to miss out of what heaven really is. And heaven is the glory of God. It is the glory of God. It, it, the greatest part about heaven is not what you're dreaming of. The greatest reality of heaven is that God is there and that he radiates like a most rare jewel is what verse 11 says. He's like jasper, like clear as crystal. He's diamond-esque. He is what all the prophets long to see. He was what Moses hoped for. Can I see your face? No, you can't see my face. Well, one day you'll see his face and that's all you'll want. You'll be mesmerized. It'll be diamond-esque. It'll be incredible. And then you'll see the city. And when you see the city, you're going to see a wall. Matter of fact, verse 12, it says it had a great high wall and it had 12 gates. So you got a question, you go, well, how high was the wall? High. <laughs> really high. That's it. So like, well, how high? I don't know. I, I'm not going to speculate to know. It had 12 gates. Hold on. Wait a second. I thought that there was Peter and I thought there was one gate. You thought wrong. There's 12 gates, and the gates, there are 12 angels in the gates. There are the names that are listed of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel that are inscribed. And then it tells you where the gates are. It says on the east, there were three gates. On the north, there were three gates. On the south, there were three gates. The west, there were three gates. And on the wall of the city, they had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The idea is this, is that you have the holy city, and as the holy city, you got three gates on every side. It gives you the appearance of a cube. And, And it's... The idea that you have three gates here, all inscribed, the nations, and then you have the foundations, which seem to be some, uh, some huge stones. Now you go, well, how big are they? Well, well, look, verse 15, it says, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod 
of gold to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rods, and it was 12,000 stadia. Uh, your Bible may say furlongs. The idea of it is it's a measurement, and that measurement would come out to be 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles thick, and it's also going to be 1,500 miles high. And you might say, okay, it's a cube. Perhaps if you wanted to, you could say maybe it's a pyramid. It doesn't know. I don't know. It could be a a cube or it could be a pyramid. You can decide for yourself what that is. We don't know, so I don't want to speculate too much. Here's what I do know. It's 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500. And here's what I also know. It radiates the glory of God. And on one side of the 1,500, then it's got three gates, and apparently it has three stones, which reminds you of the apostles. And every side has perfect symmetry. And here's why I think it has perfect symmetry. This is purely speculation, but I think it may have something. Is because with God, there is always order. And so even though there's a great diversity in heaven in terms of the apostles being noted and the tribes of Israel and the gates and the different things, uh, what you're going to have also is the people of God. You got great diversity in the way we were made and the nations and the tribes and the tongues. You still have perfect order. It's a reminder of what the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son do as they work together. There's order, there's unity, there's diversity. And yet they all submit together. It's, it's marriage. It's the church. It's all a picture of the glory to come. And so here it is. There's order. It's, it just looks with perfect symmetry. And you go, well, how, how in the world um, is, you know, are all these people going to fit here? I mean, 1,500 miles doesn't seem that big. 1,500 miles, I mean, cube, it's not, it doesn't seem to be that huge. Well, the deal is, is this. Is it, it's going to be from about Florida to Maine. And let's just say there's 2 billion people there. Scholars that are way more intelligent than me would say that you and I would have about 75 acres apiece to enjoy. The bottom line is there's going to be plenty of places for us to enjoy. Uh, what we're going to enjoy is going to look, verse 18, um, a city. Uh, matter of fact, look at verse 17. It says, he also measured its wall, 144 cubics by human measurement, which is also the angel's measurement. So a couple of things to note. One, apparently human measurements and angel measurements are the same. Isn't that awesome? Good to know. <laughs> the second thing is that you just saw a wall. And the, the wall says, what, 144 cubics. Wait a, hold on, wait a second. We just saw that the wall was really, what? High. Now you get a measurement. So the question is, if you don't know how high the wall is, then what is the measurement? Because apparently we don't have a measurement for the height, so it must be the width. And when you look at the cubics, what you need to know is 144 cubics is 18-inch measurement, basically. It's about from here, your shoulder, to the end of your hand. That's a cubic. So they would just measure that, okay? And so when you take um, this measurement here, 18 inches, you multiply it by 144, you get some crazy number in 5,000. You take that, divide it by 12, you get 216 feet. After 260 feet, divide that by three, and you get 72 yards. So apparently this wall is really, 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 really high, and it must be about 72 yards thick. So you think about a city that's 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles long, you think about the pearly gates, okay? Um, they must be pretty big. Understand? How high? I don't know. But they're not gates like you think. Matter of fact, look what it says. It keeps going down. 
In verse 18, it says, The wall was built with jasper, with a city that was pure gold like clear glass. Now look at this, verse 19 and following. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, was a gate, a fourth emerald, fifth onyx, sixth carnelian, seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the ninth chrysophase, chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were the twelve pearls, um, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, I don't know what it looks like. Here's what I do know. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be more than our eyes can behold. And you got a couple of really big questions. So is there just one gate in Peter? And the answer is no. Apparently, there are 12 gates all made of pearls. And I think I come away with this question. How big of an oyster must you have for that gate? And so the bottom line is, it's going to be incredible. Our eyes cannot understand. It's going to be an incredible city, a place that even the gold is lucid. It's transparent in the swords. It's, it's like transparent glass. You go, why? And I think here's the reason, is if you can imagine all of these stones, the diamond-esque nature of that, and you've got the glory of God radiating light. You remember what Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And an eye, there is no darkness at all. The idea is, is that he illuminates. Matter of fact, if you keep reading down a little bit more, you'll see what all he does. Verse um, 22, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for his temple, the Lord, the Almighty, uh, and the Lamb, the city. There was no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the Lord gives all the light. It, it's, its lamp is the Lamb. So Jesus is all you need. It's, it's as if God just radiates and, and you behold the nature of him. Verse 24, but it's light will, will be where the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and the gates will never be shut by day and there will no, be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lands with life. So who's going to be there? Those who know him and abide in him and have been rescued by him. And what is it going to be? It's going to be an everlasting city. The gates will never be shut. Why? Because you only shut your gates at night when you're afraid of darkness. There is no darkness. There's nothing to be afraid of. There is no tormentor. There is no deceiver. You are in perfect bliss with your husband and king. He is all you need. He radiates. You don't even have to go to a church service. There is no temple to attend. Why? Because the Lord is with you at all times. Wow, what an incredible thing. And so you're saying, yeah, there's no pain. I mean, there's, there's n- no mourning, no crying. I mean, it's going to be perfect bliss. And you go, what? I mean, what, what's, what's going to be there? Am I going to be able to do this or that? And I think the, the better question, I, I think um, that we have to think of, and a guy named Randy Alcorn, he writes a book about heaven. One of the things that he, was interesting, he said, I think oftentimes we ask the wrong question when it comes to heaven. A lot of times we ask, well, um, what will be there? And I think the better question we should ask is what won't be there? What will be missing? Well, here's the deal. The, the bottom line is we know that there's not going to be sin. There's not going to be pain. There's not going to be old order of things. And you might even ask yourself, well, what about the cowboys? Will they be there? And the answer is no, because there will be no losing in heaven. Sorry. Which helps all you Aggies out too. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) 
Revelation 22, you move into these final five verses. Um, and it says, the angel showed me the river, the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. So here it is. You've got this incredible, um, in a sense, river of the water of life. Now, the bottom line is we don't know that it's water. What we do know is that Jesus is a representation of life. You remember what he said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter four? He goes, I wanna give you water that you know nothing about. He wasn't talking about physical nature of water. He was talking about the same thing he would say in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, which by the way, we're gonna kick off a sermon series next week called Upside Down. We're gonna cover things like this. But Jesus said, hey, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after my righteousness. The idea is that you have this incredible river that then in a sense refreshes you. And then you have the tree of life which nurtures you. And that tree of life produces fruit in its various seasons. It yields its fruit each month. Now, the crazy thing is you go, well, how long is a month? I don't know. A day is like a thousand years for the Lord. Here's what I also know. Angel measurements and human measurements are apparently the same. So in heaven, maybe it's going to be a month. I don't know. Here's what I do know. The tree of life is the same tree of life, apparently, that was there in the Garden of Eden. And it's producing what? Leaves in its various seasons and leaves produce fruit. And this fruit you can eat and you can taste and you see that the Lord is good. And you look at that and you go, well, the leaves are there to bring healing for the nations. Well, if you look at the Greek word, sometimes we mess it up in the English language because we have a hard time translating it. But the word there in the Greek is the word therapia. You get the word what from it? Yeah, so you don't have to be too smart to figure that out, do you? You get the word therapy from it. It's therapeutic. The idea is that when you are in heaven, you get therapeutic. It's as if you're refreshed daily from the river of life, the presence of God, and to eat of the tree of life, it just refreshes your soul. It brings therapy to you. It's as if it's a place you want to always be. Verse three says, no no longer will there uh, be anything accursed for the throne of God. The lamb will be in it and the servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of the sun for the God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The bottom line is this, is that heaven's gonna be glorious and the heaven that will be is not the heaven that is yet. Catch this, it's also not the heaven that it was. So you go, okay, wait a second. Hold on, catch this for just a second. You remember the Garden of Eden? The Edenic covenant that God made with man? I think that's the picture of the first heaven. I think that's the first picture of God and man dwelling. But there were a handful of challenges that you had in Eden, and I'll show them in a second, that you won't have in the last heaven. But what you had is you had man as the vice regent of God. We, we ruled and we reigned with God. Sound familiar? You remember what he told Adam? He goes, hey, you, are, you have everything is subject under your feet. You are the ruler, the vice region of God. Everything comes under you. And hey, multiply and fill the earth for this is yours. Enjoy it. He saw that it was good uh, for man not to be alone. He gave him a suitable helper. There was relationships and there was eternal, in a sense, bliss. It is as if it would never have to end except for some challenges. But the bottom line is this, is the heaven that we will eventually realize is a return to Eden. It is a reminder of what is there. But the question is, well, what was an Eden that prevented it from, in a sense, maybe staying forever? I think there's a couple of things. Um, one, um, after the sin and the fall, man was mortal. 
where one day in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be immortal. We will have glorified bodies that will not spoil or fade away. Um, There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the first Eden, and there will not be that in the last Eden. All you'll have is the tree of life. Apparently, in the first Eden, there was the potential for a deceiver, right? In the last heaven, there will be no deceiver. There will be nothing to throw you off your game. Game. There will be nothing that ultimately uh, will come back and start this cycle all over again. Uh, in the first Eden, you got to see the appearance of God. It's as if they could see him, but not necessarily face to face. But in the last days, you'll see God face to face. You'll know him. You'll, he'll be a perfect husband to you. You think about the first one. Apparently, it depended upon Adam's righteousness. But in the last heaven, it has nothing to do with your righteousness. It has everything to do with who? Christ and his righteousness. In the first heaven, uh, they were able to sin. In the last heaven, you will not be able to sin. In the first, you had a limited theology in which now we'll have a full theology. And you ask yourself, well, what am I going to be able to do? Will I be able to perhaps play football? Yes, you just won't have a team, right? Will you be able to fish? Probably. But what will you do? Well, here's what you'll do most. You will look upon a perfect Savior and you will be intrigued at how multifaceted he is and how long it takes you to discover the true nature and the beauty of a holy God. It'll take you ages upon ages. And there will be no more curse of sin. For where there is no sin, there is no sickness and disease and there is no death. And all the things that bring us pain will no longer be there. And we rejoice over that, right? I think C.S. Lewis says it best uh, in the last battle. Uh, and this is what it says. He just says, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that that were so great and beautiful, that I cannot write to them. And for us, this end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the greatest story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever and ever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Amen and amen. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you that you love us and care so richly for us. God, we thank you um, that what heaven is today is not what it will always be. We look forward to the day in which we see the new Jerusalem, the holy city, that we're able to come between a new earth and a city. And apparently we're able to come between uh, 12 of the gates and we're able to be mesmerized by its walls and its height and its thickness. And we're able to recollect as we see the inscription of the apostles' names and of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we will put everything together and we'll see you and we'll hold your glory and light will radiate so much there's no darkness. And when there's no darkness, there's no sin. And when there's no sin, there's no pain. And Lord, we look forward to that day. Lord, until then, would you help us to have hope realized? Would you help us to know that we only receive the holy city when we receive and we trust your son? Because where there is Jesus, there is no condemnation. And for those of us who have trusted in him, we look forward to the day in which we will behold your glory, see you, and be in relationship with you, and we will be called your children, and you will make all things new. Lord, we live in a broken day, and we we pray, God, um, that while it's broken, that we would be the light that shines in the darkness and that we would be the difference makers. 
that are pointing people to you so that one day they do not face eternal judgment, but a new life in Christ. We love you and we trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.